And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. We listened a little bit to the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, he has been called uh, the greatest composer in Western orchestral, the Western orchestral tradition. Um, he certainly does sum up the entire Baroque period. He's really uh, the fellow who kind of said the last word, you might say, uh, on the art of the fugue. Um, Robert Riley has said Bach is like a natural theologian in the world of sound. Even his secular music is sacred. And yet, there are many musical historians and other historians who seem to deny the significance of Bach's Christian faith. We're going to take a look at it, and joining me right now is uh, Dr. Michael Morrison. He's Emeritus Professor of Music at Swarthmore College. He's written several books on Bach and Handel, including Bach and God, and The Social and Religious Designs of J.S. Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. His newest book, Bach Against Modernity, is due out next month, and I'm looking forward to that one. Michael, it's good to have you with me. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Let's, uh, let's go to, what do you make of the claims that uh, Bach's religion was incidental uh, to his life, uh, that, you know, he was certainly Lutheran by uh, employment, you might say, but it didn't, uh, it wasn't a religion of the heart. Yeah, well, it's a, you know, that's to be hard to completely cover in in 26 minutes or whatever this afternoon, <laughs> but what I, guess I can, what I guess I can tell you is that I think there's sort of an uncritical assumption that because um, there's just no question that Bach is a great genius uh, in the realm of art, mm-hmm. and it's sort of an uncritical assumption nowadays, or among not everyone, but among many people, that if someone is a great genius in the arts, that they therefore must be secular or even secularist. Right. Or, and right. if they did, if their work is, seems to be have content that's related to um, religion or to the church, that they did that just to pay the rent mm-hmm. because, you know, that, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, the evidence, however, in Bach's case is overwhelming against that. I mean, and it doesn't do just to say, oh, the music is so spiritually powerful, therefore he must have been really religious. That doesn't necessarily prove anything. Right. That would only right. prove that he's a really good composer, which he is. <laughs> but but uh, what isn't so well known by a lot of people who, uh, by general listeners, and even by many scholars who even specialize in Bach, is that there's a very strong, um, uh, like just, just for starters, let's say, they don't know that, or they sort of vaguely know that Bach had this huge personal library of books, and we know what the titles of them are, and they're, almost all of them are... Um, books of practical theology. And I'm sorry to say, uh, many of them are polemical in nature. We might come back to that later. Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> he, but, he was a Lutheran, uh, yes, at a time. <laughs> indeed, indeed, of his, of his day. <laughs> right. Uh, but what's not so well known is that he actually, there's quite strong evidence that he actually read those books, and that's, that'll be covered in that book that you mentioned, Bach Against Modernity. We'll Great. go into that in some, in some detail. But I think it'll suffice to say for now just that... Um, he, he certainly had to convince the people, and the job when he got the job as a church musician, he had to take a six-hour uh, oral exam conducted in Latin with extremely detailed questions about the Bible and about theology and so on. And there's no way that you could do that unless you were really into it. Yeah. Um, um, 
and and you had to sign an oath, and it was no, it was no joke to sign oaths in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, they signed an oath that they would only teach Lutheran doctrine and would abhor all Calvinist and Catholic and so on doctrine, and, that, and under no conditions would it ever be promoted. And then he said, he's ordained. He's not simply a musician. His, he's, like, he's ordained in the same way that ministers, pastors are wow. in the churches there. So it's a, it's, a, it's a serious thing. But the main thing is, um, Bach's personal Bible survives with a great number of uh, marginalia in his handwriting and underlinings and so on, and, and people have determined, some physicists in California have determined that the chemical content of the ink in the underlinings is the same as the chemical content of the ink in the stuff that's obviously in Bach's handwriting in the margins. Wow. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that he's concerned with there are the same kinds of things that come up in the, in the sacred music that he writes for the Church. Now, again, some skeptics would say, well, that's just him doing due diligence uh, you know, to meet the requirements of his, to satisfy his conservative employers, but he himself was actually not really into it. Well, that's a, a patently ridiculous for <laughs> two very straightforward reasons. One, this, these annotations are private. They're not, you know, he isn't boxed and expect anyone to ever be looking. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. But, but the main thing is that they were written 15 to 20 years after he wrote almost all of his church cantatas, including that wonderful music you were playing at the beginning. That was from Cantata 174. <laughs> okay. Uh, that music was written well before he was making... So the point is that these annotations, uh, there's no reason for him to do it other than he's actually genuinely into it. Yeah. And they all tend to support, the, not surprisingly, uh, the content of the, of, of the vocal work. So if, you're, if one is an impartial biographer who doesn't even care about what Bach's actual orientation is, you'd be just the sheer straightforward evidence would require you to take seriously yeah. that, that he was indeed a sincere uh, believer and uh, uh, wanted to promote all these things in the music. And one last thing on all that is that a great number of his, not all of them, but uh, um, precisely because it's not all of them, there's a very striking pattern to the way that he signs off um, scores when he finishes composing something especially larger-scale works. They're, they're, um, it's been discussed a bit, but it's, uh, he always writes solo deo gloria at the end, to the glory of God alone. Yeah. And people have said, though, that's only perfunctory. It's just like saying, God bless you, when someone sneezes. And so, but it's actually not like that. There's a very clear pattern that when he's, under the, when he's under the most pressure as a composer and has to write music the most frequently, that's when the percentage the percentages of that kind of thing go way up and in other places it goes and when he's younger there's much less and he gets older it's a little bit more serious so it, it it follows exactly you might what what you might think would be the trajectory of a of what someone who grows up to be a spiritually serious person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is um what uh, can you describe from can you derive from his music the way he handles the settings in the like St Matthew passion or the cantatas, is this is this an expression of personal devotion? Was he a pietist? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's well, see. It depends what you mean by those. A lot of there's a lot in there too. Sure. Uh, Go it, ahead. Depends, it depends what my mean what one means by personal, of course, because um, uh, certainly Bach's. Uh, when you listen to music by other composers from that same time period who are writing similar things for the church, they sound very different from Bach's, even and much less intense. 
than his, and that's mm-hmm. largely because of his greater skill as a composer, but also, I think, because of his deep spirituality and so on. Mm-hmm. But I would say, um, oh, I guess like a good way to put this is, this is not, these are not Bach's personal religious feelings. What he's doing is he's expressing the communal, the community feelings in a most forceful way that can be clearly identified as him and with him. Gotcha. But he doesn't have original ideas. He, or, you know, or it's, or it's, not, it's, not like, it's not personal expression in the way that people are taught art nowadays in school. Right. The purpose of art is, perp- is personal expression. That idea that art is for personal expression is, is a 19th century, yeah. 20th century thing, and would have been complete mystery to someone from the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bach himself would have been very, probably thought it was sinful to take such a approach. That's why he wrote the Solo Deo Gloria at the end. But it, it's interesting, it changed with his sons. His son, his uh, second oldest son, was a very great composer, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, and he wrote a piece called C.P.E. Bach's Amphindungen, C.P.E. Bach's Feelings, huh. where it is personal. But it's absolutely unimaginable that, that I, I, I will bet several years' salary that no one will ever find a piece. Uh, the, among the 1,200 pieces of Bach, there's nothing like that, but I, I very much doubt that anyone will ever discover a new piece by Bach that has the title, J.S. Bach's Personal Feelings. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, does this this turn uh, to self-expression? Uh, when does that change? Is, is you mentioned Carl Philip Emanuel Bach? I did not know of that piece of music. In my own mind, I've always associated that turn towards the self with Beethoven. Yeah, he's the one that really, really, really runs with it. Although even he, not as much as he's generally credited for, credited for, but it seems to be. Sort of a gradual thing, you know, in the um, 1750s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's gradually growing, and then it becomes a full-fledged thing, you know, in the in the in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Though even there, it's it can be exaggerated. I mean, not everyone is, you know, full-fledged doing that all the time, but it's something that is uh, pursued and valued. Whereas, as I said before, it would have been considered something um, that one would be skeptical of. Uh, um, uh, before then, mm-hmm. and that's—I mean—it's not at all coincidental that it, that it correlates with. Um, I mean, I, you know, everyone—I um, know well, full well that at the, uh, as the Enlightenment gets going, it doesn't mean that people stop believing in God. Right. But the first step towards atheism is well. Well, there are many steps towards atheism. I, would, I come from a Calvinist background. There's certain aspects of Calvinist theology that set the set the tone for it, and the Enlightenment certainly helps along too. But it's a very gradual uh, process. And I'm all you know. I'm sure you've heard this many times. I'm always skeptical when anyone says that uh, God is dead. God just never seems to quite die. You know? <laughs> right, right. So, even despite all the reports all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is, it is funny to hear that. Look at the history of intellectual history, in which all the, those claims are made uh, every generation or so, and yet here we right. are. <laughs> I am curious. Um, people would say, you know, he he wrote the great B minor Mass. Uh, he was a Lutheran, not a Catholic. Did Lutherans have the same liturgy as Catholics during that period? I mean, what, how, why would he write a Mass? Now, that is an extremely excellent question, I have to say to you, because I just finished writing a, a draft of a 15,000-word essay <laughs> that will come out in a few years, is <laughs> the way things work in academia. Um, but the title of the, the, the provisional title of the paper is, is, is the Mass and B minor Catholic, and does it matter? Okay. Yeah. 
And my answer to the quick answer, well, and I won't go into all excruciating details, but I will say the answer to the first question is a Catholic, no, and does it matter? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the short answer for now is that um, it's a really wide modern misconception that Lutherans didn't have um, uh, Latin music in the in their worship services. In fact, they called the worship service a mass. I they had a different conception of what a worship service was, but they right. still used the same name for the okay. for the service. Michael, hold, hold it there. I hear, I hear the music. music. The music is the music is coming up under us. Uh, we got to take a quick break. We'll come back and pick it up there from uh, the B minor mass discussion. Uh, my guest, Michael Morrison. We are talking about the great Johann Sebastian Bach. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, we are taking note of the great Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, birthday. March 31st is the date uh, I have here in 1685, um, 338 years ago. Uh, he's remembered as a, uh, a brilliant genius. For many people, he is the greatest composer in Western music history. And my guest, Michael Morrison, is uh, Emeritus Professor of Music at Swarthmore College. He's written several books on Bach, including Bach and God and the Social and Religious Designs of Johann Sebastian Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. He's got a new book coming out called Bach Against Modernity, which I'm looking forward to. And we were before the break, uh, Mike, we are talking about the, uh, the uh, B minor mass and um, that Lutherans uh, did use Latin uh, in their worship uh, again, just trying to figure out what the f- the musical form of the Mass, is it dependent upon the Catholic liturgy? Oh, yeah, no, by no means. In fact, Luther ends up keeping all five parts of them. And if you're in a small um, village church, then it would, the whole business would be in German. It would be German hymns and so on that would mm-hmm. have textual content that's similar, but that would fill those slots, so to speak. But in university towns like Hamburg and Leipzig and Berlin and so on, the bigger churches and the Nicholas Church and Thomas Church were, you know, very large, sophisticated uh, congregations with, you know, lots of professors from the University of Leipzig and so on going there. And uh, there it was uh, very common. The the Kyrie and the Gloria from the Mass were sung every Sunday morning in Latin, except during a penitential parts of the church year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there weren't always necessarily settings by Bach himself, but they were, um, that was ex- expectation that you would have the Curie and the Gloria in Latin at the beginning of the service, a three-hour service. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. then in the middle of the service, you would, and actually many of the prayers were chanted in Latin as well, um, some in German, some in Latin, but the Curie Gloria at the beginning is in Latin, and the congregation can respond sometimes by singing a hymn on the on the text as well. So we often get these double things. And in the middle of the service, um, the choir would do a Gregorian chant of the Nicene Creed for the mm. credo section of the Mass, but then the congregation would then sing Luther's versification of the Apostles' Creed. So, they're, you know, they're really into the creeds in the... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> heavily, um, in, especially in, in, in Bach's day. And then... Um, uh, the uh, the Sanctus and Agnus Dei had places also in the you know after the after the hour long after the hour long sermon. 
So the only thing that's sort of unusual is that is, is that about box mass and B minor is that it's so long. Mm. It's not unusual that it's in Latin that it has all five sections. But it's, it's so one of the reasons that people think that it's not really a practical church piece is because it's so long and big and so on. And I've, I've pointed out that many Kyrie Gloria sections are just as long as that in Catholic settings in okay. Dresden and so on, yeah. and also in Leipzig. Um, but the idea is that any one of the five sections could fit in in appropriate places in the church, during the church year. And the way you would get the entire thing left to right, I suggest, is the same way that Bach presents the Christmas Oratorio. The Christmas Oratorio is in six parts that spread out, spread out over the Christmas season. And you can do all five parts of the uh, Mass in B minor. You could perform them in church on those three-day big festivals, Christmas, Easter, and uh, Pentecost, where you would have they would always have church three days in a row. And so you could do part of it on each of those services, sort of left to right. That's my suspicion, is that what, what Bach had in mind mm. uh, with the Mass of B minor. And, you know, the, the most likely place for him to have a venue to get something like that performed would have been in church. I don't know what he could possibly have been thinking. There was no concert right. situation right. in which you could do it quite then. It was just starting a bit, but um, his son... Uh, again, Carlos Emanuel performed part of the Mass in B minor in a concert later, but he didn't do the whole thing. He just did the credo part. So hmm. it, it only much later became a, a concert piece. But also, I mean, I want to get too carried away here, but I've also pointed out one of the footnotes that if you were writing it as a concert piece, you probably wouldn't write the end of the credo and the sanctus and the hosanna all for a huge choir and. A uh, huge ensemble with trumpets and drums, all in D major, all in a row like that. You would. Ah. The reason that it would work is because there would be other stuff going on in between. So yes, you'd be coming back to it. If you were taking a purely aesthetic approach to writing a math, that's not the way you would do it. Very good. I hadn't thought of that, <laughs> but I, I get I get your point. Uh, yeah, well, I have to compliment you. By the way, um, the, the the coming in the, the the entrance music for each half of the yeah. program. Very clever that the Cantata 174 Symphonia is also is an arrangement of Bach's of the Brandenburg Concerto, and then the Harpsichord Concerto that you played at the beginning, the so-called secular piece, is in fact reused for organ and, and strings in one of the Bach church cantatas. It's a beautiful, perhaps unintentional, example that there's no real difference between the, the liturgical and the secular it, music. It, the same music can be used in both contexts. Yes, yes. The, the, I mean, you have a book that talks about the Brandenburg Concertos, having uh, the social and religious designs of Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. So his secular music was informed by his Christian mind? Absolutely. I mean, my a good friend of mine, a colleague and I are making historically informed, annotated translations of all the librettos that Bach set to music. Yeah. Huge 10-year project. Wow. And what we're finding is as you go through the so-called secular cantatas, what all, the, all secular means is not in the liturgy. Right, right. It doesn't mean, doesn't have to do with God. Yeah. The secular cantatas have heavy, um, uh, um, you know, uh, I don't know if it sounds negative to say theological baggage, but if it's baggage in the good sense, yeah, yeah. there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of the similar concerns from the church cantatas are also pursued in the in the secular pieces, especially since it's so easy to uh, make praise of the monarch 
very similar to the praise of God and mm. Jesus as a as a king and monarch. So, yeah. uh, and in fact, that's also why it's so easy for Bach so frequently to take one of those secular cantatas and have a poet write some new poetry and then use the same music over again. And then, hey, presto, you've got a fantastic piece of the liturgy again. <laughs> did, uh, did he was he responsible for choosing the, the libretto for the cantatas? Yeah, I mean the arrangement was. Um, that's one of the things that he signed off in his contract too. Is that they assumed that he wouldn't make any mistakes on this. I mean, if they did, he'd hear. If, if he did, he'd hear about it. But <laughs> they trusted him on the basis of his knowledge that he um, showed in those exams that he took. That he would choose librettos that were appropriate for the also for the season, and also that wouldn't have any um, things that are obviously Catholic or Calvinist or yeah. Other well, this is, that what they would consider errors, yeah. Right. Well, actually, that's a good point to, to bring up. You mentioned it earlier that it, it's a very polemical period, and uh, Lutherans were defining themselves over against Catholics on one hand, and the you know the Reformed Calvinists on the other hand. Tell me a little bit about that in, in Bach's case. How aware was he of this polemical, the larger theological polemic? Well, he, you know, he, he, his, um, that library I was referring to earlier, they, they're mostly uh, what I would call sort of uh, devotional and pastoral books. Okay. So he, he, there's not, it's not a scholarly library with, you know, Latin learned tomes and so on. Mm-hmm. But the contents of them, he has, I mean, he has books that are devoted specifically to anti-Calvinism and several books that are specifically anti, uh, even have anti-Catholic in the title and so on. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's a big anti-Jewish volume and then there's a big anti-atheism volume. And they were sort of standard books at that time, and many of them were reprinted in the 19th century in Germany, and some of them were even reprinted in English in the United States among Lutherans in Ohio and Philadelphia and so on. So these are not way out there books. They were sort of yeah. central sort of things. So he he definitely was aware of all those things. And I'm not so happy to report this, but... You know, one of Luther's favorite, uh, one of Luther's most famous hymns it was a children's hymn called Erhalt uns Herr bei deinem Wort und Steuer des Paps und Turkenmord, which is Uphold us, Lord, according to your word, and restrain the murderousness of the Pope and <laughs> Islam. <laughs> and uh, the, I don't know how much time we've actually got, but I would quickly say that the, the, the elector of Saxony had converted to Catholicism in the 1690s <laughs> in order to allow himself to be elected by the nobles as the king of Poland. <laughs> this is something that deeply upset the people in Saxony. Wow. And he, he was happy to sort of let, more or less let them do what they wanted. He let them keep all the Lutheran stuff and so on. They were very worried about that at first. But what he did say, when they were doing their big celebrations, like celebrating the coming of the Reformation to Leipzig and so on and so forth, he says, oh, for the love of God, please do not sing this hymn that I just <laughs> And so what did they do? Of course they sang it. You know, we have the records for that. And the other detail that's of some interest here, and this was talked about in the, in the new book, too, is that, that some, there were some Lutherans already in Bach's day who thought it was a little unseemly to be singing such things. And so they just changed it instead of, you know, restrain the popes, the murderousness of the popes. Just restrain our enemies. They, ch- they yeah. changed the text yeah. to already then. Yeah. I was surprised to discover that. Um, but Bach did not use those changes. He stuck with the he stuck with the original text when it would have been possible to change it. And so it shows that he was either um, genuinely into it or was a little bit careless or whatever. But he certainly did not take the care to remove some of the 
polemics. But then I can also quickly say, like many, the, some of the books actually advocate this from his library. They say, you know, Calvinism is a really horrible sin, and Catholicism is a really horrible sin, and so on, but it doesn't mean that you can't have Catholic friends or Calvinist friends yeah. and treat them like decent people. <laughs> Their animosity was towards the religion, and, they were, and so Bach had, and it sounds corny to say, but Bach had very close friends who were Catholic and were Calvinist and so on. He, was, he worked at a Calvinist court where he wrote the Brandenburg Concertos, and, mm-hmm. and he had, uh, he's, had strong ties in Dresden, which was very heavily Catholic, yeah. where the king, uh, the elector was. But he doesn't seem to have had much patience for the central tenets of of Catholicism, where they uh, in those few places where sure. they differed um, with Lutheranism. Did did his uh, sons retain an active faith? That I know less about. I mean, they um, they certainly worked in church jobs and stuff like their father, but um, they. I mean, they certainly didn't renounce it or anything like right. that. But I don't have—I don't know of any evidence that they, you know, were as sort of obviously devotional as as J.S. Bach appears to have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were on that. They were. I think my sense is they were still um, genuine believers, but it wasn't. Uh, they weren't. It wasn't as big a deal, or they weren't. As, it wasn't. They weren't as passionate about it as the, the father. As, yeah. yeah. Michael, when's uh, uh, Bach against modernity coming out? Uh, it's scheduled to come out on the 21st of April. Very good. Well, we'll be looking forward to getting a review copy of it, and I'll give you a call. Fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. Great pleasure talking. Likewise. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Michael Marissen, he is an emeritus professor of music at Swarthmore College, an expert on Johann Sebastian Bach.